Chapter 29 of The Romance of Modern Astronomy. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Kathy Kay. The Romance of Modern Astronomy by Hector McPherson. Chapter 29 The Romance of Discovery The Early Astronomers. In the previous chapters, reference has been made to the vast amount of knowledge which has been amassed by the human race concerning the universe and the place of our world in nature. In the early ages of our world's history, mankind was sunk in ignorance regarding the heavenly bodies, as was clearly shown in the opening chapter. Today we have acquired a considerable insight into the system of the universe at the present time, and have even dared to attempt to read the past of the universe and to trace its future. The advance of astronomy throughout the ages has been like that of a mighty army marching to victory. The march has been a triumphal progress so far, but we are no nearer the end, for as soon as one stage of the journey is reached, new and unfathomable vistas come into view. Carlyle has remarked that the history of the world is the history of its great men, and it is equally true to say that the history of astronomy is the life story of the astronomers. Of these, the earliest are lost in the mists of antiquity, and the name of the first astronomer will probably remain forever unknown. In the early ages, students of the heavens were not merely astronomers. Thus, Aristotle, who exercised so profound an influence on astronomy, was an all-round scientist and philosopher. The first astronomer in the actual sense of the word was Hipparchus. He was born about 170 B.C. He constructed a catalog of the positions of the stars, an idea supposed to have been suggested by the appearance of a temporary star. Hipparchus died about 120 B.C. Over 200 years later, Ptolemy described him as a most truth-loving and labor-loving man. One of the most famous of the ancient astronomers was the Egyptian Claudius Ptolemy, who is supposed to have lived at Alexandria between about A.D. 127 and 157. Ptolemy's ideas of the universe were believed for 1,400 years, and he propounded the famous Ptolemaic theory, which was eventually upset by Copernicus. Ptolemy considered, like Aristotle, that the earth was round and immovable. The celestial bodies were thought to revolve around it in the following order. The Moon, Mercury, Venus, the Sun, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, and the stars proper. The planets were believed to revolve in circles round imaginary centers, which revolved in circles round the Earth. This theory was preserved in Ptolemy's great work, The Almagest. After the death of Ptolemy, the science of astronomy was taken up by the Arabians, the chief of these being Ulof Beg, king of Samarkand, who lived in the 15th century. He made a catalog of the stars, more perfect than that of Hipparchus, and it remained the finest until the days of Tycho Brahe. Ulof Beg was assassinated by his son who desired the throne in 1447, 26 years before Copernicus was born. It had become plain even before the time of Ulof Beg that the theory of Ptolemy was very complicated. Eventually, Alfonso X, king of Castile, who took a great interest in astronomy, on hearing explained to him the Ptolemaic theory, declared that if he had been consulted at the creation, he could have given some useful hints. 
This is often considered to have been an irreligious remark, but we must remember that Alfonso X was dissatisfied with Ptolemy's views. The ancient astronomers ended up with Ulof Beg. Though Pythagoras had said that the Earth moved, the end of the 15th century found the world more ignorant of astronomy than it had been in the time of Aristotle and Hipparchus. Astronomy was therefore prepared for the revolution of Copernicus. The system of astronomy according to Aristotle and Ptolemy was implicitly accepted during the Middle Ages. The Church of Rome contrived to make the Ptolemaic system agree with its own particular interpretation of the Bible, and thus it was that nobody thought of questioning whether Aristotle was right or wrong until Copernicus came upon the scene. As has been well said, all who in these days value freedom of thought, every man who now follows freely and honestly the leading of the mind and conscience God has given him, owes no small debt to the old monk who in the solitude of the monastery garden at Fraunberg thought out the overthrow of the authority of Aristotle. Nicholas Copernicus, the founder of modern astronomy, was born at Thorn on the Vistula in Poland in 1473. He was the son of a tradesman named Nicholas Copernicus, and his uncle was the bishop in the cathedral of Fraunberg. It has been pointed out as a remarkable coincidence that the great astronomer had just reached manhood when Columbus discovered America. Copernicus was educated at the University of Krakow, where he devoted himself first to medicine and philosophy, and afterwards to astronomy, mathematics, and painting. After spending some years in various parts of Italy, Copernicus in 1500 went to Rome and was appointed professor of mathematics. Here he studied astronomy in earnest and was universally acknowledged to be a great man of science. He did not remain long in Rome, but returned to Poland, where he settled at the Cathedral of Fraunberg as a priest, devoting himself to astronomy and to his duties as an ecclesiastic. He was of a grave and serious nature, and made only a few intimate friendships. Early in his career, Copernicus came to doubt the truth of the Ptolemaic theory on account of its complications. He noticed that everything was done in nature by the simplest methods. Every new irregularity which was discovered in the motions of the planets required a new epicycle, making the system of Ptolemy so complicated that it could scarcely be understood. Another great difficulty which Copernicus noticed was that the stars were represented as revolving round the Earth in the short space of 24 hours. Some suggestions that had been made by the ancient Greeks specially struck him. Nicetas had suggested the rotation of the Earth on its axis to account for the diurnal motion of the heavens, a suggestion which Ptolemy considered and rejected. Philolos thought that the Earth moved and not the Sun. These considerations led Copernicus to revolutionize men's ideas of the entire planetary system. The first great discovery of Copernicus was that of the rotation of the Earth on its axis, an argument which Ptolemy had used in trying to prove that the Earth did not rotate, namely that there would be such a rush in the atmosphere as would carry men off the surface. Copernicus answered by showing that the inhabitants would be carried by the earth in the same manner as a man carries his overcoat. Copernicus also showed that it was much simpler for the earth, along with the other planets, to revolve round the sun in an orbit between those of Venus and Mars, than for the sun and planets to revolve round the earth. He also said that if his opinions were correct, 
Venus and Mercury should exhibit phases like the Moon. In the case of Venus, these phases were discovered telescopically by Galileo in 1611, and Mercury was also proved afterwards to show phases. In the case of the stars, Copernicus made little advance. The absence of parallax on account of the Earth's motion was for long considered a great drawback to the Copernican theory. Copernicus declared that the distance of the stars must be so enormous that there would be little or no parallax. Copernicus did not at once publish his great discoveries. Still, his opinions were well known. Men of science flocked to Fraunberg out of curiosity to know of the new system, and went away convinced that it was true. Copernicus's friends had repeatedly urged him to have his works published in book form, but he refused. An event happened, however, which caused him to give his system to the world. A young admirer, George Joachim, or Redicus, gave up his position as professor of mathematics in the University of Wittenberg in Germany in order to go to Fraunberg to hear the opinions of Copernicus. He soon became convinced of the truth of the Copernican system. In 1541, when Copernicus was an old man of 68, he agreed to give his book to the world and gave over the care of the publication to Redicus, who had the book printed at Nuremberg in Germany by a man named Andrew Osiander. The great work, which is entitled De Revolutionibus Orbium Celestium, was published in 1543. Osiander, who published it, was afraid of the opposition which it would arouse and wrote a preface to the book saying that the opinions of Copernicus were merely founded on theory and need not be received as true. Copernicus died suddenly at the age of 70 on May 23, 1543. A few hours before his death, he received the first copy of his great work. He was buried in the Cathedral of Fraunberg, and no mention of his great discoveries was made on his tombstone. Not until 30 years after his death was any memorial erected to his memory. When he died, astronomy was left in a most unsettled state. The tables of the planetary motions predicting eclipses, conjunctions, oppositions, being based on the observations of the Greeks and the Arabs, were often several hours or days wrong. It was thus obvious that until the motions of the planets had been more correctly investigated, the question of the true system of the world must remain more or less unsolved. Three years after the death of Copernicus in 1546, there was born at Knudstrup in Denmark one who was destined to place astronomy on an entirely new basis, that of exact observation. His name was Tycho Brahe. He was the eldest son of a Danish nobleman, Otto Brahe and was educated by his uncle, George Brahe. When he was 13 years of age, he was sent to the University of Copenhagen, and an eclipse of the sun, which happened in 1560, directed his thoughts to astronomy. His uncle, however, desired him to study law, and to take his attention from science, sent Tycho to the University of Leipzig in Germany. Dr. Dreyer, to whom all interested in astronomy are indebted for his admirable biography of the great Danish astronomer, informs us that Tycho was accompanied to Leipzig by a young man named Videl, who acted as his tutor. George Bahe had instructed Videl not to allow Tycho to continue studying astronomy, which in those days was looked upon as a waste of time and a most undignified occupation for the son of a nobleman. But Tycho was not to be diverted from science, having no interest whatsoever in the study of law. He bought, unknown to his tutor, a small celestial globe 
in order to know how to find the stars. He could only use it while Videl was asleep. Tycho's first instruments were a pair of compasses, one leg of which he could point at the object observed, and the other at some known fixed star, and so could measure their angular distance apart. By this time, Videl had found that Tycho had no interest in law. Tycho's uncle died in 1565, and he was free to study the stars. His relatives, who considered it a disgrace to study astronomy, began to despise him, but nothing would now distract him from his favorite study. Being looked upon with contempt by his relations, Tycho, in 1566, left Denmark for Germany, settling at Wittenberg in April and at Rostock in September. At Rostock, two events took place of great interest. In the earlier part of his life, Tycho was a firm believer in astrology, and he declared that the eclipse of 1566 foretold the death of the Sultan of Turkey. Sometime later, the news arrived that the Sultan was dead, but that he had died before the eclipse. It is satisfactory to know that Tycho gave up his belief in astrology at a later period of his career. He had a violent temper and in the end of 1566 quarreled with another Dane living at Rostock as to which was the better mathematician, the result being that a duel was fought in which Tycho was seriously wounded. Tycho Brahe had come to the conclusion that the true arrangement of the planetary system could not be ascertained until the planets and stars had been carefully observed and their positions noted, instead of relying on the primitive and imperfect observations of the Greeks and Arabs. After leaving Rostock, he went to Augsburg and erected in that town for the brother of the burgomaster a large quadrant for noting the positions of the stars. In those days, the telescope was unknown, and quadrants and sextants were the principal instruments of astronomers. In 1570, Tycho left Augsburg for Denmark. About this time, Tycho's time seems to have been occupied with chemistry, and one of his uncles permitted him to use an outhouse as a laboratory. Tycho pursued the study of chemistry until 1572, when a great astronomical event finally directed his attention to the stars. On November 11, 1572, when Tycho was returning from his laboratory, he observed a brilliant new star in the constellation Cassiopeia. At first it rivaled Venus in brilliancy, and Tycho's observations showed that it had no parallax, and was therefore among the stars, and did not belong to the planetary system. The light of the star now rapidly faded, but Tycho made many important observations on it. He published a book on the star named De Nova Stella, in which he gave a detailed description of all the observations which he had made. The publication of this work greatly annoyed Tycho Brahe's proud relations, who considered it undignified for a nobleman to write a book. In 1574, Tycho lectured on the stars in Copenhagen, but he had already made up his mind to leave Denmark and settle in Germany. King Frederick II of Denmark saw that honor would be conferred upon his country if he could persuade Tycho to remain in Denmark. In 1576, therefore, the king granted to Tycho a pension and the use of the island of Venn near Copenhagen on which he might build an observatory to carry on his studies. Tycho accepted the offer and the observatory was entirely completed by 1580. It was called Uraniaborg, or the City of the Heavens, and it was there that Tycho accomplished that work which has given him a place among the greatest astronomers who ever lived. He made observations on the planets of the utmost importance, and he formed a star catalog. 
When Tycho went to observe the stars, he put on robes of state, as it was his belief that he could not show enough reverence when entering the presence of the great orbs of heaven. In 1577, Tycho dealt a severe blow at the authority of Aristotle by upsetting the ancient views of comets. Aristotle had declared that comets were atmospheric and much nearer than the moon, but Tycho showed that they were situated among the planets. In 1588, he published a book on the comet of 1577, and in this he gave to the world the Tychonic system. Tycho Brahe was opposed to the view of Copernicus, though he had a high opinion of the great astronomer. He likewise opposed the Ptolemaic system, and was led to found the Tychonic system, a combination of the Ptolemaic and Copernican theories, in which the planets were believed to revolve round the sun, which along with the moon and stars revolved round the earth. This error was, however, of little importance, as it was in observational astronomy that the great work of Tycho was accomplished. Tycho remained at Venn for 20 years. In 1588, King Frederick died and was succeeded by his son, King Christian IV, then only 11 years of age. In 1597, he took the power into his own hands, and several serious charges were brought against Tycho. He had been given a cathedral which he had allowed to fall into disrepair. He had quarreled with one of the people of Venn, and the high noblemen were jealous of his pension. Tycho had a quick temper, but this does not at all justify King Christian in stopping Tycho's pension and forbidding him to carry on his observations at Copenhagen. In June 1597, Tycho and his family left Denmark forever and settled in Germany. The great astronomer moved restlessly from place to place. He wrote from Rostock a humble and kindly letter to the king, asking him to restore his pension. But Christian refused, and after two years of wandering over Germany, Tycho settled at Prague in Bohemia in 1599. He was honored by the Emperor Rudolf of Bohemia by his appointment as imperial mathematician, and in 1600 Kepler became his assistant. But though only 54 years old, the anxiety and exile from Denmark proved too much for Tycho, and after a short illness he died at Prague on October 24, 1601. For some time before his death he was heard to exclaim, Ne frustra vexise vedir, Oh, that I may not be found to have lived in vain. He asked Kepler to use the observations made by him and to publish them as the Rudolphine Tables. Tycho was buried in Prague, where a great statue was erected to his memory. Had it not been for Tycho, the truth of the Copernican theory, which he opposed, would not have been proved for many years after. To Tycho Brahe we owe the foundation of accurate observation, which has made astronomy the most exact, the most wonderful of all the sciences. End of chapter 29